Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello, everyone. Welcome to MedHeads. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and today we have a very special guest, Dr. Kerry Alexander. Hello, Kerry. How are you? Good, thanks. Good to see you. And Kerry, just explain briefly, what is an AOD uh, physician, an AOD specialist? What does that mean? So AOD stands for alcohol and other drugs, which quite rightly points out that alcohol is a drug, um, even though it's legal. It used to be called alcohol and drugs in the past. Um, It's also uh, the terminology we use here in Australasia is addiction medicine specialist or addiction physician. Mm -hmm. And so we're doctors that specialize in treating patients with um, alcohol and drug related health issues. And you're also an expert in uh, addiction issues as they impact upon sexual minorities. Is that right? Um, I don't know if I'd go that far, but it is a special interest of mine because um, I've always been passionate about the ensuring that um, gay and lesbian and bisexual, transgender, gender diverse people have good quality access to good quality healthcare. And within my field of medicine, we do know that, as with many areas of medicine, this some of these patients um, have trouble, uh, have barriers accessing good quality evidence-based mm. health care. And historically, we know that uh, sexual minorities have been discriminated against legally and socially. And I mean, if we can go back to the history, certainly within, the Uni- uh, within Australia, I mean, it wasn't until um, 1975 in South Australia that homosexuality was decriminalized. In 1980, uh, homosexuality was decriminalized in Victoria, and that's where we're filming. And it wasn't until 1997 that Tasmania decriminalized homosexuality. And so, you know, 1997—that's what 23 years ago. You know, when we, when, when I was a young man, it was still illegal to be gay in Tasmania. Crazy, right? And it's only um, within. And it's only in very recent um, times, uh, within the last year or two, that in Victoria, that there were um, people that had been living with criminal convictions as a residue of being charged for having consensual adult sex with their same-sex partners. With their their soulmate, their loved one. Correct. Um, And they had been living with that criminal record that had obstructed them from being able to get jobs, uh, various mm. career pathways and, and so on, and it caused enormous um, enormous problems. So it's only very recently, thanks to um, some very strong advocacy that in Victoria, mm. the state of Victoria in Australia, that that's been removed. Yeah. So there is that, so that history overhanging things. Yeah. Yeah, that legal discrimination was also mirrored in the in medical discrimination, wasn't it? It wasn't. I mean, ICD-10, I think, was the first WHO, the World Health Organization's descriptors of, of diseases. ICD-10, I think, was the first edition that actually said that homosexuality was not a mental illness. 
prior to that, it was regarded as, 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 a, as a sickness, an illness that could be cured. I do not know the exact ICD that came out of. You may well be right. I'm more familiar with D, the DSM-4s and that. Yeah. Um, and But what I am aware of is that this year, 2020, the ICD-11 is now becoming the internationally recognised um, yes. update for the World Health Organization International Classification of Diseases. And yeah. there's actually a new section in it specifically yeah. for um, sexuality and um, gender health issues. And it's yeah. actually been uh, – the fantastic news is it's actually been removed from the mental health section. It's saying this Absolutely. isn't a mental illness. None, yeah. of, none of these are mental illnesses. It's actually got its own yeah. section. Also, some of the terminologies changed, and terminology is so important mm. in so many levels. And as doctors and, and know that words are very important, they have clear distinctions. Historically, up till now, people um, who identify as non gender non binary or gender diverse or transgender yeah. uh, under the old system were technically medically labelled as having gender dysphoria. Dysphoria means yeah unhappiness, severe, severe unhappiness. However, yes. that may not have been people's situation. So the, I've actually got a document here with the latest um, classification, which is brilliant. I'm much happier with this personally. And that's, it's actually been changed to gender and yeah, gender incongruence, yeah. which is a much, uh, yeah. you know, it might not be the, the ideal word, um, yeah. but uh, it's a much more accurate description rather than yeah. labelling the person has something pathologically, mentally un, um, yes. wrong with them. Yeah. And so gender identity is, disorder has been moved into, relabeled gender incongruence has been moved from the mental health section of ICD-10 into its own um, uh, chapter on sexual health. So it's not, it, it, it's de-stigmatizing, de, it's, not, it's not a medical sickness again. So so gender identity issues are, are following behind, they're lagging behind uh, same-sex relationships as they were dealt with in, historically in, in medicine. But all this goes to the fact that sexual minorities, gender minorities, they have all been discriminated against. They've, people in those groups have, been, have suffered discrimination and social exclusion for many, many years, for, for centuries almost, haven't they? Yes, and I'm actually pleased you've brought that up, Fergal, because it was pointed out to me um, by a, at a, an expert at a conference I was at some time ago, um, a really um, key point, and that is as humans, at a very primal instinctive level, when we're vulnerable, especially as children or, you know, teenagers or, or young adults or actually adults at any stage in our life, at the core primal level, instinctively, if we are ostracized and isolated from the pack, mm. we cannot survive for the whole evolution over, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. Yes. A human being cannot survive on their own because if they get yes. sick um, or injured, they, are, um, they, they will die of starvation, of thirst, yes. of predators, yes. they cannot survive. So instinctively, if children or young people, especially as they're developing, mm. if they are going to be ostracized from the pack, and their pack is usually their immediate household, which is usually their um, their family, their parents, mm. siblings, and or um, extended family, mm. and their peer group, which is 
very important developmentally in the teenage years. If they're going to be ostracized by that, instinctively, so on a very, uh, you know, the primal part of our brain, this is actually life and death if they're going to be ostracized. So Mm. often um, as young people might be realizing that they are not heterosexual, um, whatever mm. that label may or may not be, it might be bisexual or lesbian or gay or there's numerous labels or they might not even have a label. But if they know mm. they're not heterosexual or if they know that their gender doesn't align with the gender they're assigned at birth uh, for their gender identity, then mm. by observing subtle cues is the safe. They have By the time they realise either of these, they may or are trying to articulate it or needing to get support they may have actually picked up numerous messages that it is not safe and is not okay and Mm. that they could be banned. So that might be just um, overhearing other kids in the playground saying, Mm. oh, you know, you fag, um, Mm. or that's so gay. So at a very profound level, that's a message saying that would be terrible to Mm. be homosexual, for instance. Mm. Or a young child might... um, identify with one gender and that's not the agenda that they uh, were assigned at birth and their parents might uh, despite their best of intentions might be trying to get them to conform to their gender they're assigned at birth so say uh, if their mm. parents think they're a boy and that child identifies as female and wants to wear tutus or, or whatever it is their parents might be um, trying to force them to be Uh, fit into the male gender stereotypes in our society, which actually can give a profoundly damaging message to uh, such a child in such a situation that you are not okay, that you will not be supported and loved and wanted for who you are. That may not be the intention of the parents, but that's a very, very scary message that uh, lots of children and young people get. So because of all that, it's actually uh, for many people who um, have either gender identity incongruence or um, do not identify as heterosexual, it can be unsafe to actually come out and identify with these. It might be unsafe to tell their loved ones, their close friends, their parents, their siblings, their extended family, um, their work colleagues. They might very realistically lose any prospects of job promotions or potential future work. So it might, they might have valid concerns about it affecting their career development pathway. Um, so these are—it can be dangerous and it can be scary. <clears throat> so what you're what you're saying is is so important. This idea that a lack of social connectedness with one's inv- supportive environment really is is is, is life threatening on an existential level. And this brings me on to this this idea that I'm forming. I mean, Johann Harry, uh, he was a guy that wrote The Scream. He also wrote a follow-up book on depression, and he called that Lost Connections. And he, he's basically described that, that, that mental health uh, problems all, all occur as a result of a lack of connectivity with, with various things, including peer support groups and ostracization. And that that that, identific- that that concern about oh I'm because I feel different I can't be part of the mainstream group and that social exclusion is a disconnection from our from our from the potential for support for nurturing, and that 
not only is it, is it uh, as you've alluded to, um, life-threatening on an existential level, it's also highly damaging to resilience. And a lack of resilience leads to, we know, mental health disorders, but it also leads to drug and alcohol misuse, doesn't it? Uh, absolutely. So we do know that, um, that within the groups I've been talking about that there are actually higher prevalence rates for um, substance <clears throat> misuse. Mm. And my very simplistic way of thinking about it in a very non-judgmental way is mm. a problem is only a problem if it's a problem. So I've got no judgment about whether a, a substance is illegal or not illegal, but if it's causing problems. So if, so if alcohol is a legal substance, but if someone's alcohol consumption is problematic, then it's problem drinking. Mm. Um, and that's at its crudest level. There's lots of ways to measure that and quantify it and diagnose mm. it and so on. But what we do know is that in these groups of people we're talking about today, that these are the, the rates of people um, saying, I'm having problems with my alcohol or, or uh, high rates of cigarette smoking. Mm. Um, and as well as actually mental health issues, and in particular we do know that within these different groups, that actually one of the highest rates of mental health issues is actually people that don't identify as heterosexual, but also don't identify, don't identify as totally homosexual either. So some of these people call themselves bisexual. Mm. And they're actually a minority within a minority because if you think about it, they often feel that they aren't connected with the heterosexual world or might be rejected with that. But actually, tragically, and I feel really embarrassed as a, as a member of the lesbian community, um, I can't speak on behalf of the lesbian community, but sometimes these uh, a woman that might identify as bisexual may not feel welcomed to um, participate in lesbian in the lesbian community fully, uh, mm. which is terrible. I think I think you know people should just be believed as who they are. Um, but if they don't identify as lesbian, then um, they might understandably feel that they're not part of the lesbian community. And and same with uh, men as well. Mm. So that's actually it is. There's been extensive research both in Australia and internationally that this particular group of people have really high. Uh, as a population, not all, but, you know, high risk of um, depression and anxiety, probably for exactly yeah. these reasons. There's also yeah. a useful term um, called bi-erasure, which is actually, um, it's kind of invisible. Bisexuality is invisible. Someone might identify as bisexual, but if their current relationship happens to be with the opposite sex, then um, unfortunately outside people might conveniently uh, assume that they're heterosexual, but that might not be mm. their identity in the slightest. Indeed not, no, no. We just don't know what goes on in the heart of men and women. Who can tell? Or, or humans, <laughs> more broadly, which actually brings yes, on exactly. To, That's a perfect uh, example of my binary thinking of human beings that we don't know. We, until you've walked somebody's shoes, you don't know that life. Exactly. Yeah. So actually, I um, am learning everything I can um, from transgender, um, gender non-binary, gender diverse mm -hmm. people and experts in that field, because I, I cannot claim to be an expert in that by any means. Yeah. But there's very uh, wise and courageous people who are sharing from their journeys to try and educate us so that other people don't have to uh, suffer or other people 
uh, people can have better quality health supports, especially, you know, in, in my perspective is uh, if they're seeking alcohol and drug. Yeah. drug service treatment. Mm. Uh, we do know that there are very high rates of um, su- uh, suicide attempts mm-hmm. in that particular patient uh, population, if you're looking at it as a, on the population level across Australia, and this is also shown internationally as well, and uh, very, very high. And that's one reason why I strongly advocate for good quality evidence-based healthcare, especially for anyone that identifies as gender non-binary or gender diverse or transgender, because it's been shown that actually it can save lives. People are much, their mental health are much more likely to dramatically Mm. improve and they're much less likely to have suicide attempts if they actually get good quality treatment. So for instance, that might be for a, um, a teenager to actually have puberty blockers. So that doesn't cause a sex change in the slightest. It just delays the development of adult sexual um, body parts until mm. they are old enough to legally make informed decisions as a young adult. Right, right. And that, I mean, on that subject, that could be a very challenging uh, concept for a parent to have to accept mm. that, you know, how do, I, how do I help my child who potentially wants medication that's going to change uh, his or her body or prevent his or her body from, uh, from maturing? I mean, the, 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 it's, where do you even get help, you know? Mm. So, one, like I've said earlier, I'm really not an expert at this area. I'm just trying to learn as much as I can. Yeah, but we're very yeah. lucky here in Melbourne, where I'm based, that there are yeah. some excellent services, yeah. um, and including the Royal Children's Hospital. And mm. they've got a brilliant website. So I just see any parent or, or someone mm. that cared for a parent of a young person going through this or a young person wanted to get more information, if they went to the Royal Children's Hospital website and and did a search, they'd actually probably find some very useful resources and links. So, Kerry, whilst you declaim your expertise in this particular area that we've just discussed, you are undoubtedly an expert in addiction medicine. Can you tell us, uh, give us a flavour of how addictions impact upon sexual minorities more so than they do on the rest of the population in Australia? Yes, so it's well established both within Australia and internationally that the Mm. rates of substance use, including alcohol and tobacco, amongst these populations is higher. And Mm. there's lots of different theories behind that. And I've read and read and read extensively for years, and I haven't found an exact one answer, but there's Mm -hmm. lots of different ideas. And the main one is um, the link between higher rates of depression and anxiety from being socially isolated. Um, There is also another one, and that is that as humans, especially if someone's maybe um, finally feeling safe to be who they are, so they might be a Mm. teenager or a young adult or even an adult at any age, and they might want to actually connect with the the, um, queer community, for want of a better word, or LGBTIQ community. Um, mm. and start going to functions. Often the easiest way to get into uh, making connections is through um, uh, nightclubs and bars and parties, which invariably in the, well, in the Australian culture revolve around alcohol or other mm. drugs. So mm. often that's actually um, 
the easiest way to connect. Whereas in the heterosexual world, people usually have lots of connections through sports and all sorts of things, for instance. But I think when people have higher rates on a population level of depression, anxiety, and that um, horrible numbing isolation, by having um, numbing that with substances is is a symptom of that underlying depression or anxiety. So if I can reflect that back to you, what you're saying is that a lack of social connectedness drives addiction, but also social connectedness or the desire for social connectedness can also drive addiction. You know, it's, it's the two sides of the same coin. It's almost as if alcohol and other drugs act, act as, a, as a facilitator of a social connectedness that, that wasn't previously available. I, I wouldn't used to say addiction, but as a, um, a use of um, yes. drugs and alcohol. Drug yeah. So alcohol as we use. know, most people um, try alcohol but don't become an alcoholic. But there's mm. that, it might be frequent use. If someone finally feels, oh, I found my tribe, I'm safe, mm-hmm. yes. but the only place they know might be a gay nightclub, yes. if they go there frequently, then every time they go they might be drinking alcohol, for instance. Yeah. So it's um, a bit I, of a kind of an introduction. Mm. I like that phrase. I That's find one theory. Tribe. I don't know if it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, I yes. I think it resonates true. I mean, I think that things that resonate true are, are true. I think there's an inherent truth in that. Mm. What, what do you think? So you've, you've very correctly pointed out, the, pointed out the difference between drug use and drug addiction. What's, what's the transition between use and addiction? And where, where do you draw the line? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think you've thrown me under the bus there, Fergal. <laughs> So um, at a very simplistic level, like I said earlier, a problem's only a problem when it's a problem. Yeah. So if something's causing social problems or financial problems or physical problems or legal problems, then it's problematic. And can you tell us a few examples of each of those, just uh, for the sake of our viewers? Well, as an example, I um, enjoy drinking wine. And where I live, it's legal. And it's also very socially acceptable in social situations, at dinner parties and restaurants and catching up with a friend at a bar or having a friend over and so on. However, I um, drink within the Australian recommended guidelines, which is no more than two units per day. Um, And um, personally, the amount I would consume would probably average about two units per week. So, yes, yeah. I'm using a substance that is highly that can be very addictive and can cause yeah. lots of harm. But I never ever drink if I've been. I never sorry. I never drive if I've had more than one standard drink yeah. uh, because I believe it's not safe and it's also illegal. Um, yeah. And so, I like to think that even though I'm using a potentially dangerous substance, that it's definitely not. Uh, addiction issue by any means right but then when the harm comes in so for instance as you've alluded to you know drink driving that becomes an issue and or or in terms of alcohol when the, when the volume of alcohol consumed exceeds the australian uh, limits which at the moment i think they've set them they've changed them recently it's now 10 four so four standard drinks per day maximum but no more than 10 standard drinks a week now that's quite limiting isn't it 10 standard drinks a week is what six beers a week and beyond that, yep. you are regarded That'll as someone right. now who's got problematic drinking. That's quite... Yep. So it's all <laughs> to do with health. Yes. Absolutely. So it's all yeah. to do with health. So it's about the risk to our health. Yeah. And then once you've got... It has been pa- pointed... Go on. Sorry. Uh, it has been pointed out to me many years ago 
that if alcohol was a new substance that was just invented now, it is so yeah. harmful that it would be banned. It would not yes. be legalized. It would not be legalized, no, no. So we've t there is a continuum, isn't there? So from, from alcohol use or other drug use to then misuse, and then we have addiction. Uh, and I suppose that's characterized by various withdrawal states and dependency states. And for people to, who then uh, develop an addiction, and they have a, a very challenging journey ahead of them towards recovery, and that's always so sometimes predicated on the need for a, an inpatient detox. What are the barriers and the challenges to accessing help for uh, sexual minorities, and how would you how would you advise people to overcome those? Yeah, so there's multiple ones, but um, we're very lucky here in Melbourne that mm. there is a health centre a service with multiple different arms to it. Um, it used to be called the Victorian AIDS Council um, when it was first set up decades ago, but it's now called Thorn Harbour Health. Mm. And they've got uh, multiple different services and resources, including a great mm. website, which has numerous resources for health professionals and potential mm. patients for multiple health issues for GLBTIQ people. So mm. that includes, um, for example, they actually have a recovery program, a group program for mm. men who have sex with men who are concerned that their um, methamphetamine use has become problematic. Mm. So it's, um, I suppose, like it's a culturally, it's a safe space, if that makes sense. Yeah. They're not going yeah. to be judged for the fact they have sex with men. Yeah. for example. Yeah. So that can be a really good place to start. Um, one of the concerns, and it's, a, it's kind of a tricky way to go, is that in reality, if, if a patient is, um, is not heterosexual or isn't cisgender, so if there's gender identity doesn't, isn't congruous, mm. um, and if they were to go for an inpatient detox, there may be a very understandable concern that they might be discriminated against. Not necessarily. I've been at lots of private and public detox units in Melbourne and had a lot and spent lots of time in them. Personally, I think that would never happen by health. Any of the health professionals I've worked with who are all brilliant, but it actually could happen by some of the other patients there at the same time. Mm. Yeah. So they, 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 there's a concern that sexual minorities would suffer discrimination from the rest of the patients, more, more so from a position of ignorance rather than malice. Yeah, or there might be some homophobic uh, mm. bloke who's putting down, um, you know, trying to prove how cool he is maybe by, mm. you know, putting down fags yeah. and gays and poofs or whatever. Yeah. And that's the last yeah. thing that a gay man yeah. needs to be around when he's in a really vulnerable point in his life. Yeah. Fortunately, though, um, that exact same service I talked about earlier, one of their resources on their website, which is freely available, and I would encourage anyone to use it who does work in any residential alcohol and, um, and other drugs mm. service, such as a rehab or detox users, it's a really great resource for staff to try and make it as safe as possible for trans and gender diverse patients. And yeah. lots of that can be applicable to all patients, really. Um, yeah. And it's actually about supporting staff to, um, if, if we overhear um, discriminatory terms, to actually address it. 
And mm. it might be um, going directly up to the person that's made those comments and maybe discreetly or, you know, in a very, either at the end or in a group level, just talk about res- the importance of inclusion and respect mm. and dignity, for instance. And that's actually modelling to everyone else there that it's not okay to flippantly um, or maliciously um, make any derogatory comments about anyone regardless of their gender identity or sexuality or or race for that matter as well yeah carrie unfortunately we run out of time there is so much to talk about i i really do hope that we can have you again on the show to to continue on this theme but thank you so much for uh, your pearls of wisdom today thank you so much it's always a pleasure talking with you fergal catch you later bye-bye thank you That's it for today's MedHeads. My name's Dr. Fergal Armstrong. I look forward to your joining with us again soon.